It has already been mentioned, but I know we each feel it so strongly in our hearts that we're thankful that we can come together in a time like this one. In so many ways, the chaos and the frenetic way that things seemingly take place around us, it is a sense of calmness and a sense of tranquility and serenity to be appreciative of the peace of God that passes all understanding, to borrow the words of Philippians 4, 7. And tonight, you may have noticed in the bulletin that we would turn our attention to another installment in our questions and answers. This is already the sixth installment this year. So, as always, I might be quick to say, I know the congregation so often comments about your interest in and thankfulness for these particular lessons. And, of course, it depends on you. If the questions dry up or if they no, no longer come, then obviously these will be more infrequent. But so far, we always seemingly have plenty of wonderful questions. In fact, there are a couple more questions awaiting our consideration, so I'll be getting to them in, in some future lesson, hopefully fairly, fairly soon. In this sixth installment tonight, may I also say, as I think it appropriate to say, that the questions are yours. I don't ever ask my own questions. I always allow the comments or the particulars you've placed in the box to, to in fact, be the guide for these. So if you do have questions or things are resting on your mind, please just write a little note. You don't have to sign your name to it. Put it in that box or share it with me directly, however you wish to do it. And I will certainly use that as a part of these lessons. Tonight's set of questions, again, as always, are very interesting. And I might even be quick to say that as I interpret sometimes the questions, it may well be that I do not interpret it the way that you as the writer of the question intended it to be interpreted. And if that's the case, that certainly is on me. And just kindly reword it or rewrite it, put it back in the box, and maybe I can do it more justice as, as to what you had in mind. The opening question tonight is this one. What is meant by apologetic preaching? A very interesting question. What is meant by apologetic preaching? It is certainly the case, and I thought it wise to begin the question this way, that the word apologetic has two rather distinct meanings. That is to say, two usages that are rather different. And so it is that we'll begin by observing those two definitions. First of all, you can correctly use the word apologetic as it relates to a feeling or showing of regret along that same line of acknowledging in a regretful way a fault or a failure, or finally, to express an apology. And you might have guessed something like that given the word apologetic. But I might be quick to say there's another very different kind of usage, and it's that second one. It means to vindicate or to defend. Let me be first to say that no preacher is certainly, if he's worth his salt, or trying to do that which the Bible teaches, will be preaching in a way consistent with definition one. No preacher is going to apologize for what the Bible says. No preacher is going to apologize in a regretful way for some particular presentation of the Word of God. Didn't Paul say in Acts 20, verse 27, I have shunned not to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Seven verses earlier, he said, I kept back nothing that was profitable for you. Furthermore, Ephesians 4, 15, to speak the truth in love. And so definition one really doesn't correspond to what a gospel or Bible preaching would do. But note the second definition, to defend or to vindicate. 
I might be quick to say that is the heart and core of apologetic preaching, to defend the gospel, to vindicate by presentation what the Bible proclaims. And the Word of God is filled with reminders about not only preachers doing that, but all of us as Christians doing that. And so I have asked you to notice a few passages. As we move toward the recognition of them, could I remind you that I guess one of the most well-known organizations of our day has this as a part of its title, Apologetics Press, centered in, I think it's Montgomery, Alabama, and they are set on the defense, if you please, of what the Scriptures teach in any realm in which it touches, be it science, be it sociology, be it psychology, to defend what the Bible teaches. As far as apologetic preaching, the word apologia, and I don't claim to pronounce that exactly right, but in the Greek, that's the way it's spelled, apologia, and you see that word a few times in the New Testament, and it's quite often interpreted with the word defend. Look at some of these express examples. Acts 22, verse 1. Paul apologized before the group that was assembled in defense of not only his case, but in the nature of the Christ. Acts 22, verse number 1. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3, Paul would say, My defense, same word, if they examine me, relates again to the Christ. Paul, you see, was one quickly to defend the faith of the Lord, the faith of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 1, verse number 17, in particular, Paul wrote, I am set for the apologia of the gospel. I'm set for the defense of the gospel. You could see that Paul then had in mind that when there was some force threatening the gospel in a public way, threatening the truth, Paul was quick to defend the presentation of the gospel. In 1 Peter 3.15, consider this admonition to each of us. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you, with meekness and with fear." That part of that verse, to give a reason, relates to the very idea of apologia. Maybe it is in that connection that we'll close this by noting that frequently in the New Testament, we see a reference to this, especially again in the life of Paul and some of the other preachers of that era. In Acts 17, for example, verses 2 and 3, as Paul came on the second missionary journey to the city of Thessalonica, he said, I opened and alleged. Now, I freely admit the word apologia is not directly there. But notice, he opened the Scriptures and he alleged. He convicted them by what it taught, which was very different than what the typical expectation and the cultural matter of that day was. Today, shouldn't we then open and allege with boldness that which is the gospel of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, that idea centers around the concept of apologetic preaching. Today, aren't we thankful that the Word of God encourages us in that light? Didn't Paul tell Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, has not given us a spirit of timidity, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, but has given us a spirit of things that he would mention in connection to the boldness of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. On to our second question tonight. 
This question reads as follows. Since a Christian sins on an ongoing basis, when is it needful to come forward? Isn't that a good question? In fact, as you develop some of the characteristics and some of the attributes of that particular question, I've asked you to perhaps build it up in your mind the following way. The person who asked the question made the observation, even once a person obeys the gospel, that person will continue to make poor choices or will continue to engage in matters that are sinful. The Bible quickly informs us in 1 John 1.8, any person who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. So might we appreciate that being baptized into Christ is not a channel through which one passes that leads into a life that has no sin whatsoever. We're still going to make errors in judgment. We're still going to choose to perhaps say things we shouldn't or leave undone things we ought to be doing. All of that reminds us it is true as the person has mentioned a Christian does sin. Does that then mean that at every service... When the invitation song is sung, every one of us need to be coming forward. Is that what that indicates? Is that one conclusion that would follow from it? May I again say it's a very good question, a very thoughtful question. How do you know then if a person, as a Christian, does continue to sin, when do I make the determination I need to come forward? Well, let's spend a few moments and think perhaps more carefully what would be involved in at least some thoughts concerning this matter. I've asked you to observe the Word of God is very clear that with regard to sin, that repentance is a requirement for the obtaining of forgiveness. And as we notice in 1 John 1, 9, confession is also a needful matter. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 9. Did you notice the little two-letter word if begins that verse, if we confess our sins. It thus follows that if we refuse to confess them, if we refuse to make acknowledgement or appropriate admission of them, then the cleansing that that verse mentions, the forgiveness that verse in fact discusses, will thus not follow. So shouldn't we at least acknowledge the fact that confession is going to be important? But that will only take place when there has been appropriate repentance. Again, the question, so should every one of us as Christians be coming forward and making an acknowledgement of sin and asking for prayers at every single service? It's clear we do not seemingly follow that kind of idea. Why not? What would be a correct understanding of these matters? You'll notice about the middle of that slide, I've asked you to consider James 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There certainly then is some sense in which confession, appropriate confession, in the hearing of others, is something that has good, good benefits. It does bring about that which is appropriate that which would be consistent with the will of God. All of this is again begging a good question and the one the querist has asked tonight. When do we come forward? It would seem that the Word of God's description on all of that would lead us to the following observation. Go back with me to Acts 8. 
in that chapter, we have the following scenario that developed. You recall that Peter and John had come into the area of Samaria, and as they, in fact, laid their hands on those Christians, those people that had been baptized, conferring the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, those people were not only thankful, but Simon made an observation. He saw, this is Simon the sorcerer now, he saw that through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were conferred. And Simon then said this, Here's some money. Let me have that power. I want to be able to lay my hands on people so that I can confer the, Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. Now remember, Simon had already obeyed the gospel. He had in fact become a Christian. And he now was involved in error. He thought that he could buy this with money. He thought that he could avail himself of it by some characteristic of payment. When Peter confronted him, let's notice what Peter said. I'm reading, starting in Acts chapter 8, verse number 20. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. So the first thing to note, the problem lay not in merely the external thing that Simon did. The problem's in your heart. Your heart isn't right with God. There is the thing out of which all of these actions and other words will in fact develop. Now verse 22, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness. So the first commandment issued through Peter to Simon was, you've got to repent. That will in fact relate to the nature of understanding the error, appreciating the fact that you cannot purchase this with money, and upon changing that mentality, then actions can follow. So first it must begin with repentance. Then it says, pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. So repentance and prayer were both going to be involved in the addressing of this matter. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned into Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now, isn't it interesting that we have thus seen a test case, or at least something that reminds us of how we can approach the question that has been asked? You'll notice on the slide I put it in these terms. We seemingly notice that Simon asked these in that audience, those who were aware of what he had done, to be involved in the characteristic prayer on his behalf. He said, you pray for me. And notice... Simon had attempted to purchase these in the presence of these very people before whom he had asked for prayers. It would thus seem that perhaps a principle is in order that I've tried to state on that slide. It seems entirely wise to appreciate that there's an acknowledgement or confession of sin to the degree that there's a basic acknowledgement or awareness of it. Now, in a moment, we'll speak more about the details of that, but consider this. It does not seem as if 
the Bible teaches that it's needful to parade one's sins before all kinds of people who know nothing about it. That is to say, what benefit is gained by this? Often reputations can be damaged in a way such that conviction and confidence, even in the future, will not be an occurrent thing. But when you and I are in the midst of those that we know and those that know us, and those that are aware of perhaps challenges or issues that we have faced, and decisions that we have made, decisions that turned out to be poor ones, decisions that turned out to be hurtful ones, then to make confession of this before them will not only generate a characteristic association on their part with us, they can pray on our behalf that we might overcome and overwhelm this mistake and that we'll not fall prey to it again. But to merely blindly confess it before all, you'll notice Simon didn't do this. Simon didn't say, you take these matters back to the church in Jerusalem and make sure that you confess it there and pray for me there too. He didn't say that. He didn't say, take these matters to the other congregations uh, in other locales and confess them there. He didn't say that either. He asked them, those apostles and that local group there in Samaria, to pray for him. Today, shouldn't we then be acknowledged the following fact? We may well be guilty of many sins that are entirely of a private nature. In other words, things by which thoughts have crossed our mind that should not have. We witnessed something that perhaps we shouldn't have been watching. Or maybe we entirely failed to speak up on the part of the Lord when the opportunity availed itself. None of us would question those are all sinful. Did others know about them? Perhaps not. Did others have any sense of awareness of them? In all likelihood, not. I would suggest it's not needful to come forward and confess things like that. But in a penitent heart, go to God personally. Make admission of them and perhaps pray for encouragement and strength that you will have the fortitude and boldness to not make that mistake again. Now, may I be quick to say, if one finds oneself failing on multiple occasions, would it be a good idea to ask for prayers of fellow brothers and sisters? Here's a situation I'm facing, and I have faltered in this matter more than once in my life. I don't want to do it again. Would you pray for me? That would be a wonderful prayer. Because we believe in the power of prayer, don't we? And if there's a group of people, my brothers and my sisters in Christ, who have me in mind and they are praying for me in a particular way with regard to some element that has been a source of weakness for me, I have every certainty that that will only help me to be stronger as I face it. It will help me to, in fact, overwhelm it even more notably than I otherwise would. So in short, wouldn't it be easy to say that it would seem that the Bible encourages us to only confess an appreciation of prayer as widely in general as that thing is known. The Bible doesn't seem to demand that one do it more broadly than that. So here in this congregation, our elders, they will never take things we confess and announce it at Willow Avenue or Jefferson Avenue or Sycamore or other places. That's not their business. That's not their business. Our business is here. As you come near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice some thoughts that over the course of time, 
ultimately developed into some rather notable error in relation to matters like this one. Think about the structure of the Catholic Church. You have a particular consideration of confessionals where you go into this room and there's a priest there to whom you can confess and information might well be shared up the line in the Catholic Church. Now notice the Bible doesn't say anything about that. What it teaches is what we've discussed tonight. So I hope that that gave some address to that question, and it was a very good one. And that's why not all of us are coming forward every time, though we are guilty of sin. May we handle those sins always with appropriate repentance, in private if necessary, and also confession that's appropriate. Question number three tonight. Question number three has to do with angels, and it reads as follows. We know there are angels today, but are they among us, watching over us? Isn't that a good question? I suppose it's true that one of the more frequent subjects of questions surrounds the topic of angels. Because after all, angels are interesting, interesting creatures. I would even say that there have been many a television show and many a song that has been written over the years relating to the kind of question that has just been asked. In fact, do you remember the song, the country song by the group Alabama? I think it came out in the early 1990s. Angels Among Us. Well, that's the very issue of this question. Are there angels among us? As you turn to the Bible, you may observe that some of the remarks in relation to this question will be brief. I preached an entire series of lessons on angels a few years ago, and I think that series extended to upwards of six or seven lessons. So to condense it for the course of this particular question is certainly one that I'll intend to do in a reasonable way approaching this question. But again, if I fail, please just rewrite the question and we'll just tackle it from another angle. But as far as angels, we know that angels exist, just as the person in the question noted, and we know that they are vast in number. In Hebrews 12, verse 22, in fact, it says there is an innumerable company of angels, more than you can number. So that means, in fact, the person's exactly right. Lots of angels. And not only that, we know that they abide in the realms beyond this one, and they do so in a very organized and orchestrated fashion. I say that because of the wording of Jude, verse 6. There we have an especial appreciation of an estate that some chose not to respect. Now that word estate has to do with a hierarchy. There is an organization of angels. There's, after all, an archangel. There's, after all, other angels that serve in other capacities. But do we notice that they are organized? They are, not, they are not beings who just do what they want in an otherwise pattern. But with that said, are there angels among us? Are they in particular forms here on earth? I mentioned television shows, and you have seen them perhaps as well as I, where someone does some interestingly helpful thing to somebody else, and it turns out before the program's over, that was just an angel in disguise. Or it was an angel appearing as a human being. Or it was an angel appearing in some other particular form. Is that correct? Does the Bible teach that? 
you'll notice that several things might be said about angels. First, in Luke 15, they rejoice over one sinner that repents. They are excited when the gospel is obeyed. They are excited when a wayward Christian comes back home. It leads to their rejoicing. Might I say even beyond that, you might want to be turning to Hebrews chapter number 1. I suppose the most definitive verse we have in all the Bible on the work of angels and some of that which relates to them is found in the last verse of this chapter. So I'd like to read it and then we'll devote some attention to it. In the book of Hebrews, through 13 chapters, there is a remarkable defense of many attributes of the gospel. And among the matters that's begun in this book is, Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. And among the ways that's discussed brings the author to make this statement. Verse 14 of Hebrews 1, Are they not all ministering spirits? The word they refers to angels. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, I suppose it's entirely true that that verse begs many more questions. And I'll be the first to say there's a lot of particulars relative to angels that I do not know. But what we do know is this. That verse says angels are ministers for Christians. Angels are ministers for those who will inherit salvation. We know Christians are going to inherit salvation. It is said of them, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Romans 8 verse 1. And if angels are ministers for those people, these angels are ministers for you and me. They are some way servants to assist, to help God in terms of our direction, our work, our place in life. How do they do this? Where do they do this? In what way do they do this? Those are great questions. Many beyond my low realm, I'll be quick to say. But I can offer you these thoughts. The person I ask in particular, are there angels among us? We have no scriptural evidence as far as I know that angels can take the form of human beings and that they live here upon earth among us. I don't know of any Bible text that makes any statement about that. Furthermore, it says, are they watching over us? Now, we've already learned that in some way they're ministers for the faithful, ministers for those that are heirs of salvation. And so, with that Hebrews 1.14 as a springboard, this next slide is one where I briefly mention some of the things which the Bible says that angels have done and are doing. Let's quickly notice some of them. So what are angels doing for you and for me? First of all, in Luke 16, verse 22, the angels are said to have borne the spirits of Lazarus to the world beyond. So when a Christian passes away, it would appear that we have that from the lips of the Lord Himself, which testify the angels are critical elements in bearing the spirit of this saved person to the Hadean realm beyond. That by itself is an amazing thought, isn't it? But with that, look at Jude verse 9. What else do the angels do? 
In Jude verse 9, we have the description that the angels there had a clear and definitive work in opposing the work of the devil. Consider for a moment. The devil is active. We know this. As a roaring lion, we know this. He is out as arch enemy of those who are those desiring to be the faithful of God. So how do angels, and what is it that can be said about angels actively opposing in some way the work of the devil? I confess, I don't know a whole lot more about that one. But I know there are two passages that speak to the occurrence of this thing. In your life and mine, could it be that in some way these angelic beings are assisting in some way to allow us to remain faithful in the presence of otherwise fiery darts that the devil may hurl our way. Now let me be quick to say, we know that the Word of God allows us a defense to anything the devil may do. Could it be that angels in some way will assist to bring to our mind truths from the Bible? Elements of defense from the Word of God? Perhaps. Beyond that, I feel it's dangerous for me to speculate anymore. But we know in those two cases, the angels at least did have a role to play in that matter. Nextly, what about the execution of judgment of God? We notice in several cases in the Bible, when the God of heaven made a decree, the angels were enlisted as those that helped carry out that judgment. That happened several times in the Old Testament, and at least one I know of in the New Testament. Consider that case. One of them, at least, in the Old Testament. When the angels, in fact, proceeded to carry out some of the matters of God's judgment, even on Jerusalem. And in fact, that ended up being stayed when the appropriate response took place in 2 Samuel 24. Otherwise, in the New Testament, what about Acts chapter 12? You remember Herod? Now, there was more than one person named Herod, but the one under consideration there exalted himself, and there were some who said, It's the voice of a God. And they just thought he was the greatest thing ever. He did not direct the glory to God. He took it to himself. And we well remember he was eaten of worms and died. But did you notice that angels were enlisted as a part of what brought about that sentence of judgment, and it happened immediately? So could it be that when the God of heaven renders a verdict, perhaps in light of our nation, maybe in light of something else that takes place, that the angels are a part of what helps carry out that judgment? It sure would appear that it happened in all of those cases. Maybe that's still a part of what these angels, in fact, are asked to do. In another case, what about those that are unredeemed? Suppose there's an individual who has an earnest desire to hear and learn the truth, but to this point in life, perhaps due to where this person lives, due to the kind of environment in which this person has been brought up, they have had no immediate exposure to the beauties of the truth that you and I know and love so well. When that kind of situation happens, consider the scene of Acts 10 verse 3. What was true in regard to Cornelius? Here was a devout and earnest person. Now, he was living the best way he knew how to live, and God even said his prayers had come up for a memorial to heaven. But he had not obeyed the gospel. He was living under the patriarchal dispensation. 
He, you see, was a Gentile. And yet, notice that angels were utilized to help bring that man knowledge of the truth. And when he heard it, he responded at once. Could it be today that God might employ angels in a way like this to assist someone who is honest but unredeemed to come to know what needs to be known in order that they might respond? It sure happened in Cornelius' case. Maybe it could happen again. Could I at least offer this? The person also asked, Are there angels among us watching over us? And I suppose an immediate phrase that comes to mind is guardian angels. Are there guardian angels, meaning that each one of us have his or her own angel whose job it is to watch over us, to keep us safe, and to make sure that we do not get into any harm? There has been much talk about guardian angels. Would you be turning to Matthew 18, verse 10? This is the only verse in the Bible that makes mention of something that would make you think along that line. Let's see what Jesus had to say on that occasion. Verse 10 of Matthew 18 reads, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. Jesus did use the phrase, their angels. Does that then teach that each one of us has a guardian angel. The first thing I'd say is if that's what it teaches, it looks like the angel messed up when a faithful youngster somehow dies or when a faithful person of God otherwise gets into a car wreck, and yet we know that happens. I might suggest it, it appears to me that the Lord is not teaching here about the reality of what we would call a guardian angel, where each one of us has an angel that is dedicated to us whose job it is to keep us faithful and safe from harm. In fact, the Lord's words do not have to be construed that way. Notice there is plural, it's not singular. And that would seemingly suggest there are hosts of angels... And again, they minister to the faithful. But it's not their job, it would seem, to ensure physical safety. If you and I choose to do that which is unwise, we can certainly injure ourselves or harm ourselves and even others. But what the Lord does seem to be teaching is that there are legions of angels, plural in number, and it is their task to serve God in the effort of benefiting in the ways appropriate those whom God would wish to serve. To say that is then to say, their question had to do with, are there angels among us? It does not appear so. And are there guardian angels? Again, it does not appear so in the way that most of humanity would think. As we leave that question, let me kind of leave the matter of that question in that way and hopeful that we at least discuss some of the matters needful. And let's look at the fourth and final question tonight. This question, again, rather briefly reads as follows. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives today? The same kind of statement I made about angels could be made even more so here. We considered a series of lessons numbering 13 at one time, and so I certainly can't condense all of what the Holy Spirit is doing into a few moments. But I do think it entirely wise to at least quickly highlight some things. 
It has often been noted we adore God and appreciate Him, the Father, in many ways. And we're thankful for what He does in our life. And the same thing's true of Jesus the Son. We honor and respect Him and are thankful for what He does. But when you mention the third member of the Godhead, the Spirit, what's He doing? What on a daily basis is He doing for me and for you? Some Christians, I suspect, would almost have no answer. They don't have a good feeling for what He's doing. So let me take just a moment and say this. The Spirit is such that the Bible teaches a very powerful set of things for which we should be thankful because of the ongoing activity of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, many in the religious world have taken that far differently than what the Bible teaches. Many teach the Spirit doing things the Bible doesn't teach He does. So what does He do? And may I say again, notice I did not say it. The Spirit is a being just like the Father and the Son. It's not an it. It's He. What is He doing? So on that slide, notice one thing for which we can be so appreciative is the Spirit has provided the Bible. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, this particular event we know took place in the past. He, through the marvelous agency of His being, brought about the Word of God, putting it in written form for us. And aren't we eternally thankful and grateful for that? So every time you and I read it, appreciate it, peruse it, meditate upon it, reflect upon it, we are reflecting on what the Spirit has done. And may I say this, not only did He provide it at one time that way, but through the course of years since, He has no doubt had a part in preserving it. Remember, there have been men who have desired to eliminate the Bible. Voltaire once stated it as his goal, I will destroy every Bible that exists. He said within 50 years there will not be a Bible on earth. Obviously he failed. Obviously that did not happen. But ironically enough, many of the very intents that he had lead me to say this, the printing press that was used to, in fact, send forth some of his propaganda later was used to print Bibles. He failed, you know. The Word of God reigns still supreme. May I say, no doubt the Spirit has an ongoing work in the preservation of and the propagation of that Word. But even beyond the Word of God, look at some of these additional matters that I might ask you to observe. In John 3, verse 5, the Spirit has a role in conversion. Didn't Jesus say, except ye be born of water and the Spirit, ye cannot enter the kingdom of God. So every time a conversion takes place, the Spirit, through the agency of what the Word has brought about, has made that a reality. But in addition to that, may I suggest the ongoing work of the church. Some have chosen to categorize it as benevolence, edification, and evangelism. There are New Testament scriptures that relate each of them in one way or another to the work of the Spirit. 
In addition to that, unity. We've noticed on Wednesday evening in our studies in Ephesians 4, it is the unity of the Spirit. Everywhere that unity prevails, the Spirit is behind it. It is He that's endorsing it and promoting it. In addition to that unity, the leadership of the church. We have elders here at Pippin, very thankfully so, and other congregations that enjoy that same element in leadership. Notice that elders occupy the position they do under a banner of Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. The Holy Spirit appointed these men. We agreed to follow them. It is the Spirit that directs their thinking, fills them with wisdom, and leads them to make the decisions that keep our congregation faithful and strong. In addition to leadership, could I remind all of us about the practicality of the fruit of the Spirit? In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, nine things are listed as the fruit of the Spirit. Notice just a few of them. Love, joy, peace, kindness, meekness, gentleness, temperance, all of them. They are the fruit of the Spirit. So the Spirit encourages the development of these things. The Spirit encourages the matters related to them. So whenever love reigns supreme... Whenever gentleness reigns supreme, it is the Spirit mandating and encouraging it. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Now, we know that the Spirit, as He has set forth His Word, the Word of the Lord, it is that Word that teaches of of these things. Now, as you come near the bottom of that slide with me, I merely mentioned the fruit of the Spirit. Notice, He didn't say the fruit of the Word but it's that which the Spirit makes active and alive in our life today. May we be quick to say the Spirit doesn't act now, separate and apart from the things that, of course, the Godhead has revealed. So the Spirit is not going to tell you and I something different than what He has already said. There's some in our world today who think He does, who thinks that He tells them a smooth, soft message that's not somewhere in the Bible. God is no respecter of persons, Romans 2.11. In looking at those matters tonight, those four questions bring us to a moment of conclusion. They've been great questions, and maybe they've prompted in our thinking some new ways of looking at the Word of God. As always, please continue to ask questions. They are beneficial to all of us to consider them, and I hope that they'll be a blessing indeed to us. This very night, if there is someone in this assembly that, as our first and second questions indicated, your life isn't as it ought to be, and you know you need to be right with the Lord. If you've engaged in things known in some way publicly, you need to deal with it publicly. You need to, in fact, make confession of this and acknowledge that repentance, and we will be delighted to pray for you, just as they did for Simon. And rest assured that God will hear that prayer. And in, as that forgiveness, as He extends it to you, you can enjoy a position of faithfulness, steadfastness, and always knowing again to do that which is right. But if certainly if that's something that you need to do, don't wait. Don't suppose that there will be a better or another day. Today's the day of salvation. If tonight we could be of some assistance in any of those ways, we would like to be. 
you'll feel better as you leave tonight and how comforted you can be knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is at your side. If we could be of help, won't you come while together we stand and sing?